This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And welcome everybody to the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your humble host, very humble today, John Allen. And today I'm speaking to the very interesting gentleman by the name of Rick Kirkham. Hello, Rick. Hello, John. How are you? You know what? I'm doing great. Uh, another fine day in Norway, as you have experienced yourself. I am enjoying a beautiful day in Buda, Norway. It's sunny outside and it's not too cold, so it's a good day. Yeah, what's the temperature up there now? I think it's probably about 13 or 14 outside. Okay, yeah. It's yeah. about 14, 15 down here in Drummond. Um uh-huh. Of course, now my heart, my heart is in northern Norway. My wife and I have a place up in Finnmark, even further north uh, than you are. Yeah, and that's, I tell people my heart, my body is here in southern Norway, but my heart is up there in Finnmark. It's just beautiful up there. It is beautiful. The further north you go, the more beautiful it gets. Do you notice a difference in the people as well? I've noticed that people... I notice a difference, I'll be honest with you, I'm in Oslo quite a bit with all this Tiger King stuff going on, and I notice the difference in the people in Oslo versus the people here in northern Norway. Uh, Here in northern Norway, people are a lot more laid back. Yes. Uh, We tend to take it easy, and, you know, um, I don't take the keys out of the car, I don't lock the front door, Um, we just don't worry about that kind of thing up here in northern Norway, so there's a big difference in the people. Yeah, it's... Really, two different countries. I, I agree. It's a, it's totally two different ways of living. The, the the openness and the friendliness. And I'm not saying people are rude down south here, yeah. but but there is a certain amount of openness that they lack. That you you only find that up in northern Norway. Yeah, I think so. I agree with that. Now, as what as happened with me, uh, it was a Norwegian lady that brought you to Norway. Yeah. How how did you guys meet? Yeah. We have a similar story there in that uh, we both found a Norwegian woman. Actually, um, my story goes way back. Um, I, I did a documentary that won Sundance called TV Junkie uh, back in 2006. And I got about 300,000 emails from people from around the world because of that film. And one of them happened to be a girl named Kristen in Buda, Norway. And as the years went by, the, the number of emails went down and we became closer friends online and uh, finally about eight years ago we were both in london at the same time and just missed seeing each other and it was such a close call that we decided that we kind of became boyfriend girlfriend over the internet so um after i left the uh the zoo uh, the tiger king was uh, the subject of uh, i had had a, a house fire and lost everything in this house fire and uh, she, I reached out to her because I was, I was psychologically damaged from the house fire. I lost my little dog that saved my life, died in that fire. Oh, wow, that's terrible. And, uh, so I reached out to her, and uh, we got closer and closer. And uh, about uh, three and a half years ago, I told her, listen, I'm coming to Norway, and I'm just going to marry you. <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and here I am. Well, you're a man of your word. That's it. About three years now I've been here. We've been married for two. Well, that's just beautiful. Congratulations on your fresh marriage, and uh, may you have many, many more years to come. I tell you, Norwegian women are... Um they're their own breed of women. They are quite different. I, 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 uh, I love the, how do I put it? Because now my wife is Samisk. Um, so okay. that's, 
So that's a whole other thing again. But yeah. she has this fierceness about her that I appreciate, but I feel sorry for the people that that fierceness is directed on. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, the, the Norwegian women, there's a, they have a strength. Yes. Them, right? A very strong backbone. Yeah. And uh, so I know when I've done something wrong, it doesn't go by. <laughs> <laughs> well, they keep us humble. That can't be a bad thing, so. And you said your wife in Samisk. Yes, yes. Yeah, you know what? That was one of the things, John, when I first came to Norway that uh, I discovered that I'd never heard of in my life was Sami music. Ah. Uh, Sami pop music. Yes. And and I went wild when I heard it because it reminded me so much of American Native Indian. Yes. And and I, so I play Sami music all the time here in the house. Anyone who knows me here in Buddha knows that Rick plays Sami music throughout the house all day long. So it was just kind of interesting that your wife is Sami. Yeah, and and their music, or I'm I'm sorry, their culture is is so similar in many ways to to the different uh, North American Native Native American tribes. It's uh, quite striking with the similarities there. But um, yeah, that's my wife. She's a little uh, she's a little ball of fire. So you mentioned uh, TV junkie. Um, I, d- I just have to say it uh, for my listeners. If you haven't seen that documentary. TV junkie, you are really missing out on a, I call it a work of art, uh, in its nakedness, in its honesty, and in the way that it touched my heart. Uh, I might be a little biased having lost my son to a heroin overdose quite recently, but, but, uh, I'd like to think that even if it hadn't been for that, that documentary would have touched me, uh, quite powerfully. I have never seen a personal documentary like that, a personal video diary with so much honesty. So hats off to you for that alone. Well, th- thanks, John. You know, TV Junkie uh, came about from a, an idea from a friend of mine. I had done these video diaries all my life, and uh, I don't know why I did them. Instead of writing them down, I was in TV, so I just talked to a video camera. I'd take a tape out, throw it in a box, but over the years came up with 6,000 hours of, uh, of personal diaries. And a friend of mine uh, about 15 years ago said, Rick, you need to put it, put this stuff together and make a movie. Uh, you could probably help a lot of people out because of the drug addiction that I went through. Uh, and I ended up losing my career because of it. Um, so I decided that, you know what, if it will help people, if uh, maybe somebody uh, sees it and goes, I don't want to go that direction, uh, or help maybe help a family member understand what, a, what an addict is really like, I'd go ahead and do it. What really made TV Junkie so impactful, I think, is that there was no narration in it. It was all just me and my yeah. diaries. And I never meant for those diaries to be made public. No. So they were very raw and they were very true and very honest. Uh, because I wasn't talking to an audience. I was talking to me. Yeah. Uh, and I think... And I think It's a very honest story. Very honest. Story. Very honest. And I think a narrator would have just gotten in the way. A narrator, narrator would have watered down the message. Yeah, we didn't need a narrator. I, had, I We had so many hundreds of thousands of hours of these diaries over the years. And, uh, of course, TV Junkie was an hour and a half long, and it originally it started out as a six-hour miniseries. That's, so that's how much material we had. Yeah, what did you say, 6,000 hours of video? 6,000 hours of video recordings, yeah. What is it, can, can I ask you, what is it that motivated you to 
begin a diary. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's quite interesting that you chose to go the video diary route. But what made you want to document this period, whether it was video or, or written diary? Well, you know, I, I, as a little kid, I found a, a little crank-up film camera in my dad's dresser drawer, and uh, mm. I was four years old at the time. And at the age of four, I, I, went, I got him to actually get me a roll of film. Uh, it were only three minutes of film on a little roll, and I, I made a film of my hamster running in its wheel, just running around and around and around. Um, but then when uh, video finally came out when I was around, home video, rather, film, probably when, when I was around 14, 15, and I got my first video camera, and I went wild. I started just shooting anything, documenting anything and everything I possibly could, and uh, so I decided then to start talking to the camera. So the the uh, video diaries went back all the way to my age 14. Interesting. It was just, it was easier for me to just talk to the camera. And as I learned later in life, the camera I actually was talking to was very therapeutic. Um, I, I would talk to his camera and tell his camera things that I would never tell a human being. Never, you know, tell my parents or tell a, a, my, my girlfriend or a wife, nothing. Interesting. So it came out very, very honest and very raw. And so when I finally gave them up and said, hey, take these and make something, uh, they came up with TV Junkie. And obviously, it, it uh, did what we wanted it to do. It, it uh, got everybody to open their eyes to addiction a little bit. Well, and and uh, there is so much good in in that because it's it's very interesting to me as big as a problem as opiates uh, are in the United States. I think a lot of people are still closing their eyes to that problem. Yeah. So that documentary is needed. I have noticed more living in Norway how pill addicted we are in America. Yes. Um, because in Norway, you go to the doctor, they don't just hand you a bunch of pills. Yeah. It's a whole different system. Here. Yeah. Well, you get the medical attention, but they don't just throw out, you know, Valium and Xanax and, and hydrocodone like they do in America. I can go to a doctor in America and get whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, half of the time, you don't even have to ask for anything. The doctor's kind of pushing it on the patient in the States. Exactly. I tell you, li living here for the last 19 years, I've gotten such a different perspective on America. Now, uh, and I don't want people to take that negative. I am I am American. I haven't given up my American citizenship. I probably never will. I'm incredibly homesick. However, <laughs> being away from the United States has made me more aware of the flaws that our country has. And one of them is this relationship to, to drug, to especially opiates, this relationship to opiates that the United States has. It's too, it's too accepted. It's too normal there. People don't see it as the problem that it is. Yeah. It's, it's part of everyday life in America. It really is. Um, and I, you know, being in television all my life in America, uh, I had drugs around me all the time. And uh, opiates weren't even considered drugs by most people because everybody was taking them. Yeah, yeah. Now you got involved, or you got started in uh, as as a news anchor in the early '80s, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, 1984 in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas. Okay. And, uh, I ended up going to Las Vegas from there and did four years at Las Vegas before I went on to national TV in New York. Okay. And if I remember correctly from the documentary, 
already at that local news station, there was a culture for the drinking and the drugs in Texas and oh, yeah. at that news station already. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a television station, a newsroom especially, is uh, just like any other show business uh, aspect. Uh, the drugs are there. The parties are there. Um, you know, no matter what size of town you live in, uh, it's part of the culture. And show business just happens to have a very terrible uh, addiction to addiction. Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting thing to say. If if I can ask you a, a rather personal question, what was it that opened the door to drug use for you? Was it that classic thing where you're very busy in your professional life and you need a little pick-me-up so that you can have the energy to do what you do? Or was it just that there was an atmosphere for it there at that job and it was readily available so it was something you just felt like trying and the problem built yeah, from there? When I was a teenager, John, I was a DJ at a nightclub. And so being a DJ, I would have uh, girls come up to the DJ booth wanting to hear a song. Uh, uh, you know, everybody wanted to know the DJ and hang out with the DJ. So I was very popular. Yeah. And most of them would come up, they would have drugs. And that's where I learned about cocaine, about cocaine and uh, some of the other drugs that, uh, that I was snorting. At one point, I even shot up cocaine. Yes, I remember that from the documentary, yeah. Yeah, so it, 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 um, but it started around the time I was a DJ at age 18, 19 in the nightclubs in Oklahoma City. And from there on, uh, it got so bad at one point, I actually took off, sold everything I owned at age 20 and went to Australia and lived in Australia for three months uh, to get clean. And then I came back and that's when I started my TV career. Okay, so... It was after you were you were in Australia that your job intervened and arranged for you to get into a rehab program, correct? Right. How how did you take that? Now here I'm thinking about the situation with my son because he protested quite loudly and enthusiastically when the issue of rehab was brought up. How did you respond when they intervened and and opened the doors to rehab for you? I was quite the opposite. I was uh, ah. relieved. I was very relieved that, uh, uh -huh. you know, first of all, they could I could have lost my job, lost my career right then and there. Yeah. Uh, but I was relieved not only that I wasn't going to lose my job, but that somebody cared enough to put me in, into a rehab to get me some help because I needed that help. I needed it badly. And, and I went to rehab twice. Uh, the first one only worked for about six months, uh, and I had to go back to another one a few years later. Uh, but I was relieved. Um, I, I, I think depending on the situation that an individual is in their life, they're either going to be extremely relieved and ready to go saying, please help me, or like you just mentioned, they're going to fight and say, I don't have a problem, leave me alone. And I know people like that. Yeah. Uh, and those are the people that just haven't figured out yet but that's the wrong way to go. Yeah, in uh, in the end, uh, just a couple of months before he passed, uh, my son did go into rehab, but I think it was for the wrong reasons. He had gotten himself into some trouble, some legal trouble, and he had himself in some trouble with some people on the street. I'll just leave it at that. So I think he needed an escape. Uh, he was living outside of gary indiana at the time and he went to a rehab in minnesota um 
actually it was one of the best rehabs that you could that you could find in the, in the States up in Minnesota, up above uh, Chaska in Minnesota. And everything was all set up so that he could have finished that program, which was supposed to be at least 90 days, finish that program and then come here to Norway with me. And he turned that down. He left after, I don't think he even did a week at that rehab and things things just snowballed from there and then he ended up passing quite quickly after that last stint in rehab it's um yeah as you say either the person recognizes the need for rehab or they don't and if they don't but they still go to rehab for the wrong reasons i think they're kind of condemning themselves to failure well and, and you know the per is a lot like the alcoholic who goes to Alcoholic Anonymous, but then goes out drinking afterwards. Uh, they're not really ready for it yet. Yeah. Um, you know, in your case, though, John, what's kind of amazing and very touching to me is you just lost your son a matter of months ago. Yeah. Um, months, and yet you're able to talk about the subject and uh, and maintain uh, some some level of sanity. I I, I applaud you. How you do it. Well, thank you for that, Rick. I don't know how I do it either. I, 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 I tell people all the time, I have no clue how to get through this. Um, it, it, it broke my heart uh, uh, losing my son. And, and I am clueless as to how to get through it. So I'm, I, I just threw myself into this whole situation with my podcast. I wanted to do a podcast where... I'm reaching out to people to be guests, people who I think can, I guess it's selfish reasons, people who I think can give me some motivation uh, and give my listeners also some sort of motivation, leave something on the table. You know, you and I are having a meal together now, and I'm hoping we leave some crumbs on the table that my listeners can then come and pick up and scavenge to make their lives fruitful in some way. And of course I'm hoping that it does that for me as well. That's really the whole reason why I do this podcast. I'm also a stand-up comedian and I put that trauma of losing my son into my act. And I, I don't know. It's extremely difficult. In fact, the last time I tried to do it, I couldn't finish. And I told the audience that I couldn't finish and it just turned into a, open therapy session with my audience at the time. But um, it's hit or miss. But like I say, I I have no clue how to get through this. This is just part of it. There's something that I find therapeutic in this podcasting process. There's something that I find therapeutic in in including that trauma in my stand-up act. I'm also a musician, so of course... It doesn't doesn't surprise me at all, John, because as I mentioned earlier, throughout my life, doing my video diaries, I, I, I learned later in life, I was really talking, it was therapy. Like talking to a camera and not having any come, come back at me and ask me questions, just let me talk to it. It was therapeutic. And I think what you're finding in your podcast is therapeutic. Um, just talking about the subject itself. Can be, you're, you're literally getting psychological help through your listeners and through the people you interview. 
Absolutely. And uh, as I gain more listeners, people are sending me messages on social media and a little bit by email and sharing what they're going through or even just reaching out and saying that, you know, if, if I need an ear, I can call them up, uh, you know, and given words of encouragement. So there is some self-interest in the sense that I'm looking for an answer for what happened uh, to my son and how to deal with it. Absolutely. I, I openly admit that. It's not easy to talk about, but I try to be as open about it as possible. That is the number one um, uh, That is the number one thing in my life right now is this process of trying to deal with losing my son. So I have to talk about it. If I didn't, I think I would start losing friends. I think I would start, uh, you know, I have a wife and we have two kids here. I have a, my daughter back in the States and her children, my grandchildren there. I think I would start to lose them if I didn't open up about what's going on and how difficult it is to deal with it. I, I think it's amazing that you could talk about it, especially so fresh after losing your son. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you're a better man than I am. I don't think I could do this. Oh God, no, <laughs> no. Well, but again, you, but you did do it in a way in the, in the sense that you were doing this video documentation of exactly what you were going through at the time. Now, granted, you had no intention of sharing it, but you still did that. You were talking to yourself. A lot of people can't have that conversation with themselves, but you, you did. Know, having the conversation with myself was the easy part over the years because, like I said, I never intended for anybody to see it. Yeah. Uh, the hard part came when we went to actually make the film TV Junkie because I had to sit down and there were four monitors in each corner of a big square room, and they were running back my entire life. Wow. So I had to sit in the middle and identify what tape was what, what you know, date this was, where was this shot, when did you do this. And I did that for two years. Uh, and that was the hard part. Wow. Back in the video that I shot all these diaries of everything that I That was Can I... Rick, I have to interrupt you. Now I'm losing the sound. Now the sound level all of a sudden went down. Is there any way you can be closer to the microphone? I, I might can get a little closer, but um, yeah. nothing's changed on my end. There we go. Now I got you back. Yeah. Um, it's okay, though. I tell, my, I tell uh, my listeners that this is a very low-tech podcast, so if the sound goes out, if this, that, and the other happens, so be it. They're used to it. It's a good thing because I'm a very low-tech guy. I, I don't keep up with all the digital stuff much. Uh, I, I am, I, I'm fortunate enough that I, if I have to do something live like this, I usually have a producer take care of it. But yeah. It was just a one-on-one -on -one with you and I. Yeah. No, I am far from uh, technically savvy. I have the equipment that I have, and I barely know how to use it. So if there's any glitch or if something needs to be updated, I'm lost. <laughs> so I'm flying by uh, the seat of my pants here. Hey, I, I just got the Bluetooth ear set today just for this podcast, just so I'd be able to hear you okay myself. Yeah. So I, I try to keep up with it, but I'm slow. I'm very slow. <laughs> well, we're slow together then. You said I was a better man than you, but I, I don't think I'm more technical than you. We're about the same right there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you, you, you managed to get through to me, so here I am. <laughs> no, I'm just, glad, I'm just glad you answered. I can imagine that people are probably scrambling like crazy to get a couple of minutes with you. You're, uh, you're a pretty popular guy. Yeah, it's nuts right now. Yeah. You know, it, it, I thought it was going to slow down. Uh, maybe a month and a half ago, uh, all this Tiger King stuff, you know, has got me, uh, I've been down to Oslo several times and yeah. every TV 
television show in the world. And it started to die down, and then all of a sudden we find out that the uh, Tiger King series has been nominated for six Emmy Awards. Yeah. So it's shot right back up. Now I'm literally running from one broadcast to another. Yeah. Yeah, so so again, I'm thankful for the... You stood out, though. Your story stood out, and that's one reason I wanted to take a, a few minutes to talk with you. Ah, well, thank you. Because you have a reason, uh, other than me, you have a good reason to sit down and talk. Well, hey, Rick, like I said, your, your, uh, your documentary, TV Junkie, it really spoke to me. I was in tears through 95% of the thing because so much of what you said, so much of what... Uh, I could see going on on the screen just hit me directly because of what my what happened with my son. So, you know, I, I want to say one thing about Tiger King, but it, it's probably not something you've heard before. Now, I am a stand-up comedian. I'm doing this podcast, and I'm also a musician and songwriter. So working with those things, I'm very, very uh, much a proponent of artist rights, copyright and things like that. Now... When everybody started making a big buzz about Tiger King here in Norway uh, quite some time ago, uh, of course, I heard about it. I, I got interested in it. But then I found out that this guy, this guy, Rick, somebody or another, had filmed a bunch of footage that was supposed to be the original documentary. Right. And it got lost in the fire. Yeah. And that turned me off. I guess I am so... Um, so much the proponent for artist rights. I felt like you were done wrong. Like you are going to lose some of the recognition that you deserve because you are the one who first brought the idea of the whole Tiger King thing to life. Yeah, I, I uh, went in and uh, to do a reality TV show and stayed and lived in that zoo for a year and uh, shot thousands of hours of, of videotape and interviews. And uh, to have it all destroyed in a fire, uh, literally, I, I, I fell down on my knees and I cried when I saw the studio burning. I bet you and, did. That's a lot of work. I had to also run back and get psychological help again because I had invested so much time and energy into that project. But, you know, a lot of people think that because, uh, like you just mentioned, because Netflix came out and were able to make a series and they kind of got all of my credit, um, I, I, a lot of that footage came from me anyway. I had some in the cloud. I had some on a disc here or there. Some of it survived, not a lot of it. Okay. Um, and to me, uh, it was kind of almost, almost kind of a feeling of revenge that Netflix came back and did that. Okay. Uh, a feeling of revenge towards Joe himself, uh, that he was now getting all the fame that he had wanted so badly through my reality show. He just didn't get all the joys that go with it because he's sitting behind bars. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a, a actually it was a good feeling seeing Netflix come out with this series. Okay. Well, that's an interesting take on it then. Okay. Yeah. So you... Joe Joe is where he belongs. Yeah. Um, He's one of the most evil men I think I've ever met in my life. And uh, I, I can't believe I spent a year. Uh, I, I spent more than a year in therapy after the zoo and the zoo fire than I did in, in the entire time I stayed in the zoo just to get my head back on straight. You know, because he, he had driven me that crazy. Uh, he, he was your basic cult leader. See, and that, 
And that's quite the long time for you to be in such a toxic environment and not just on the not just on the edges of it, but I would imagine you have to be in the thick of it in order to get what you need for your documentary. Well, and, and as a former addict, you know, I exactly. started in the zoo. I started drinking pretty heavily because of what I was seeing and what I was experiencing. And, and as I've told everyone else on, on various TV shows, I, I sold out my soul by staying in that park. I sold out my journalistic integrity by staying in that park long, as long as I did. I should have gotten out and away from it uh, right after I discovered, you know, what, what he was and what Joe really truly believed and did and, and lived. Um, he was a very evil man, to, not just to the animals, but to the people around him. He can, a lot of people. Can I be so fresh as to try and correct you on something you just said? Um, mm-hmm. you, you said that you, you feel that you compromised your journalistic integrity by staying there so long. What would you say to a commoner such as myself who says there was a certain amount of journalistic integrity that was demanded of you in order to stay there, in order to document this craziness that's going on? There was something newsworthy. Of course, entertainment value was there. Look at what's happening with it. But there's something newsworthy in that kind of depravity. And it's... It takes a certain amount of toughness. It's a very gracious uh, way for you to present to me what I did and why. Uh, I still feel guilty for having stayed as long as I did. Mm. Um, I think, though, you do make a good point in the fact that I'm a journalist first. I've been in the news business for 40 years, uh, and I saw what I was doing as a news reality show. but I, I saw so much that I just turned a blind eye to. I see. Ignored that personally, uh, after finding out that he literally tried to, to have somebody killed, uh, I, 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 felt, I felt responsible that I didn't come forward and, and say something to somebody, that I didn't go to the authorities over what I knew. I understand. But, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. Thank you for giving me a gracious way out of that feeling. <laughs> I I I, ju- I guess I just uh, it's not everyone who has the strength to stay in a situation. I, I I guess I'm trying to put myself in that situation. And if you see the depravity, you see even the 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 possibility of someone being murdered. But maybe inside, you're feeling. I know I would feel like maybe there's something I can say or do to make this go in a different direction. Now that's a compromise of journalistic integrity, but it's to the greater good. I, I, you know, I, I tried every day yeah. to get Joe to go a different direction. Uh, that's one thing I guarantee uh, I don't feel bad about because I did. I, I, I tried every way known to man to get him to settle down, calm down, treat people nicer, yeah. treat the animals nicer, it, but nothing worked. Uh, the, the man just has an evil heart. Yeah. And, uh, and that's just the way it was. But that was Tiger King, and, and uh, it's come and gone now. Yeah. Hopefully uh, it'll die down again here soon as soon as the Emmys come. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I've talked about Tiger King so much. I, they, they, everybody now calls me Tiger Rick. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a title that I'm not real proud to hear. But, uh, well. Here in Buddha, of course, everybody knows me, and now everybody knows me as Tiger Rick. So it's kind of stuck. I'd like to use a different nickname for you. I'd like to call you Brother Rick. 
I feel a certain amount of brotherhood with you. Um, as I said, your your uh, your document, your your journal, your your diary, uh, TV junkie spoke to me, and it. I feel like it gave me a certain connection with you, and and I definitely appreciate it. So let everyone else call you Tiger Rick or whatever they want. I'm going to call you Brother Rick. I like that, brother, brother John. That sounds good to me. Hey, how about that? There we go, and the family grows. <laughs> you know, um. I, uh, I I don't know how much time you have, but I, I just want to ask you uh, briefly, how are you doing today? Forget about all the craziness going on. How ha, have you found peace up there in Bulda, Norway? Yeah. How do you feel? I am, I am running a little short on time, but um, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I, I'm very content. And I think that's the one thing about the Norwegian people, especially here in northern Norway, that I appreciate the most is they're content. Uh, you know, the, the social democracy, uh, which in America they, they think is communism, yeah. I found the social democracy to be quite comfortable. Uh, yeah. You're protected medically, you're protected legally. Uh, I find the system here in Norway very comforting. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to have medical uh, procedures done here that I needed that I couldn't afford in, oh. in the United States. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. But I'm, I'm happy. You know, I, I have a, a beautiful Norwegian wife. Uh, I have my retirement uh, pay from the United States. I work here as a journalist with Buddha Nua Visa. Yeah. Uh, so I get to do my video reports on watch Rick go do this, you know, I'm a tourist <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and I and also it's a barrier between me and, and the Tiger Rick thing, which is all back in America. Sure, people here are interested in it, but I don't hear it every day. Yeah, you know, yeah. As, as I would in America. Um, there's a buffer. But, but I'm very happy. Good. I, I appreciate you asking because, I, excuse me, I've, I've got a, a couple of dogs and a beautiful home. And I, I sit out and I, we live on the busiest intersection in Buddha. Our co- we have a corner house, and I look out this window and see all these cars. To me, I could be sitting in Dallas. I could be sitting yeah. in Dallas. It's like a big city, but we're only yeah. a city of 50, 55,000 yeah. people. But yet, to me, I can look out, and there's cars and buses, and I wave at all the tour buses when they go by. And yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy, brother. I'm happy. That is so good to hear. Um, you, you've got to be one of the toughest people walking the earth to have gone through everything that you went through and then share it with the world and turn out as happy and as healthy as you are. So I'm hats off to you. Uh, I love you. I'm so glad. I, I joke a lot with people that, that I'm hard to kill. Hard to kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, stay that way, my friend. Stay that way. I will. I will. I'm going to sign off here. Can I get you to hold on for one second? Just to, I'll say goodbye to you off the air, but uh, I just want to say, I just want to say thank you for giving, uh, giving me some time. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for sharing. Hey, you know what, John, we'll do it again. Anytime you like, I promise brother. Sounds good. Okay. That's uh, Rick Kirkham, everybody. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you.